0: The Tanya of Rabbi Schneer Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg
1: So we are in the middle of letter number 26 page 134 al Last two classes, we learned. He asked a question. He quotes a Zohar, a portion of the Zohar. It's in the Zohar, but this is the portion said or written by Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu. It's called the portion of Raya Mehemna, the Faithful Shepherd. And in this portion, he writes that the Jewish people will merit the future through the Zohar the Zohar is called light so this will illuminate today we only have the tree of knowledge which is the Talmud the Talmud, the revealed part of the Torah right and wrong do's and don'ts kosher, not kosher guilty, not guilty but when Mashiach will come and and then we'll be able to taste from the tree of life because then we're going to be studying the Zohar and we'll be redeemed through studying the Zohar with mercy so then we will be engaged exclusively in the study of the inner part of the Torah and then the Torah scholars will not mingle with the earthy ones who are connected to the tree of knowledge which is a mingling of good and evil kosher, not kosher pure, impure valid, invalid but the, the uh, Torah scholars who will be connected to the tree of life they will prevail they won't be dependent on anyone And it's only the simple people, the earthy people, not the Torah scholars. For them, the Messianic era, the only distinction between the Messianic era and today is that there there won't be any anti-Semitism. There will be a political change. There won't be any anti-Semitism. The world will be at peace. But they are still going to be engaged and involved with the tree of knowledge of the, the external part of the Torah. But the Torah scholars there will be completely connected to the tree of life. Today we don't have the tree of life. Adam was kicked out of the Garden of Eden because God says he's afraid he's going to eat from the tree of life and will live forever. So he was expelled. But Mashiach will come. That's when we will eat from the tree of life, which is the Zohar. And... Um, So the Alter Rebbe's question is: He says it was very strange, very puzzling. This whole statement. How can you call the Torah, the revealed part of the Torah, good and evil, and the Tree of Knowledge, a mixture of good and evil? Every part of the Torah is divine and godly and holy. So how can you call any part of the Torah? And what does he mean that the Torah scholars will be independent? The Torah scholars were independent. Many Torah scholars were wealthy and independent even in the times of the Talmud. Even before Mashiach, in exile. So, so what, does, what does the Zohar mean? Also, he says, what was the main occupation of Rabbi Shimon Be'ehoi, the author of the Zohar? He himself, the author of the Zohar, the master, the master Kabbalist. His main occupation... Was the revealed part of the Torah. There isn't a chapter in the Talmud in which his name is not mentioned. So the whole Zohar is very brief. didn't engage or occupy most of his time. Most of his day was occupied and engaged in the studying of the Talmud. So if this is the tree of knowledge, if the Talmud is a tree of knowledge, why would Rabbi Shimon the master of the Zohar, the tree of life, why would he engage? most of his time be engaged in the study of the revealed part of it. If it's the tree of knowledge, a mixture of good and evil. So Now he gives the answer. He gives the explanation. So if you learn the Zohar very superficially, it makes no sense. But al is going to clarify exactly what the Zohar means and explain the statement. But in truth, if you examine closely the above quoted
0: text of Raya and Mahemna, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, i.e. prohibition and permission, you will know that it does not say the teaching, i.e. studying the subjects of prohibition and permission, nor the laws of prohibition and permission, would suggest that they are to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Rather it means to say that the actual thing which is prohibited or the thing which is permitted is of the tree of good and evil.
1: This is the key. If you look carefully, the Zohar, God forbid, is not telling us that the Torah, the Talmud, the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law, the revealed part of the Torah, is from the tree of knowledge, good and evil. God forbid every word, every letter in the Torah is divine, it's holy, it's 100%, it's the tree of life. But he's talking about the objects, the objects in which the Torah is dealing with. The Torah is dealing with kosher, not kosher, he's dealing with the physical objects the objects of this world the objects of this world which the Torah discusses which the Talmud discusses and the code of Jewish law deal with the objects are come from the tree of life of a mixture of good and evil
0: I have to ask a question really out of naivety going back to the last week's of there was two trees, good and evil and there was the tree of life Adam Rishon was not allowed to eat from the tree of knowledge
1: later on after he sinned it says the Torah Hashem says I'm afraid he's going to eat from the tree of life and he's going to live forever and that's why he expelled him from the Garden of Eden
0: would he have been able to eat from the other tree?
1: well that's question number one question number two the whole thing is a contradiction because here why was he told not to eat from the tree of knowledge? because what's going to happen if he eats from the tree of knowledge? He'll die. He'll die. God wants him to live. To live forever. Had he not eaten from the tree of knowledge, he would have lived forever. So God was worried that he shouldn't die. He wants to make sure that he lives. Now all of a sudden he eats from the tree of knowledge, all of a sudden God's worry is the exact opposite. Oi, he may live forever. He may eat from the tree of of life and now he's going to live forever. (laughs) We can't have that, so we have to expel him, make sure he doesn't live forever. Make sure that he dies. Here you're worried that he shouldn't die, and that's why you warned him, don't eat from the tree of knowledge, because the day, God told him, the day they eat from the tree of knowledge are gonna die. That's when
0: he was in a pure state, then he became an impure state.
1: Exactly. So that's the answer. In the beginning he was programmed to live forever. He didn't even have to eat from the he would have he didn't even have to eat from the tree of knowledge. He was programmed to live forever. Had he not eaten the tree of knowledge, he would have lived forever. And that would have been fine. That's natural. He should live forever. Why not? Why should man die? Angels live forever. Angels are pure energy. They're plugged into their source. Adam was also plugged into his source. He was completely connected to Hashem. God is eternal. If you're connected to your source, the body should also be eternal. Why not?
0: Are there Majors that say if you eat from the Book of Life, then you will become quote unquote godly and be able to create and destroy? Why would man want to have? Or why should man have those same powers?
1: Well, that's what he he was programmed. He was programmed to live forever. He was programmed, and that's what and that's natural. It's he had
2: free will initially.
1: He had obviously, yeah, he had free will. Obviously, he made a choice to eat, eat from the tree. Because
2: angels don't. Right, Adam doesn't
1: freedom, but he had freedom—freedom freedom of choice—and his curiosity got to him. And we'll get to his mistake in a moment. But the what happened was once he ate from the tree of knowledge, and as a result of him eating from the tree of knowledge, evil became part of Adam. Which explains why why Adam made a mistake, why the snake was able to connivingly. Convince them to eat, because he says you'll be like an angel. Angels know good and evil, and it doesn't affect them. And they're right, because for an angel, it's just an abstraction. Good and evil for an angel, his knowledge is like an abstraction. It's like if you know about a cannibal, does that make you into a cannibal? No, it's like an abstraction, a curiosity. It's like it's like uh, talking about a Martian. It's so far remote from your reality. So for an angel, it's a pure abstraction. They can know good and evil. It doesn't affect them. But man is different. Because we internalize everything. We're different than angels. We're constituted differently. We're superior. We're more internal. Everything that we know, we become. So when Adam knows evil, he becomes evil. It becomes part of his makeup. Part of of his constitution. That's why Hashem said, that he's not allowed to eat from the tree because what's going to happen is once he eats from the tree of knowledge evil, before that there was a separation. It's like hell is hell and and and, and paradise is paradise. There are two realities but the two shall not meet. It's two different worlds. So when God created the world evil is evil and good is good but they were completely separate and apart. No mingling, no connection. Does
2: that mean he didn't then, have an answer?
1: he had a curiosity and he was seduced by the snake to acquire that knowledge and he was, he was convinced that it wouldn't affect him, not knowing that he's not like the angels. It's a, it's a wrong comparison. And what happened is when he ate from the tree and he became aware, he became self-aware and self-conscious and the evil became part of him. And because man is the microcosm of the whole universe, He degraded the whole universe. Now the whole universe became a commingling of good and evil. Everything is now confused. There's nothing that's purely good. Poison, you can make medicine from poison. Too much sugar, too much of a sweet thing can kill you. A person does kindness, but he wants his name bragging and he wants his name uh, all over the place. So he's doing good, but it's mixed with evil. A person appears to be kind, he's very charming, but inside he's rotten to the core. He's selfish, self-centered. A person appears to be very rough, on the outside, inside, he has a heart of gold. Nothing is clear. Everything is so mixed and confused and discombobulated as a result of the sin. And ever since, we have to clarify and separate. That's what the Torah is teaching us to separate pure, impure, kosher, not kosher, good, not good. And that's, what, that's our mission in life. But once evil became part of Adam's constitution and became part of him, now he must die. Because if he's going to eat from the tree of knowledge, he's going to live forever there'll never be any clarification. Because when, when, what happens when a person dies? Your ego dies. Your soul doesn't die. Your ego dies. It's an atonement. It's the ultimate atonement. Your ego, there are certain sins that even Yom Kippur can forgive and even pain and suffering can forgive and even Shuva can forgive. The only forgiveness is when the person dies and his name is forgotten and his ego comes to an end. That's an atonement for the soul. So, the, the soul has to go through that process. It's a process because what happened as a result of the tree of knowledge? He became aware. He got an education. People pay a lot of money for an education. He got a, he got a free education. Why is that a punishment? sounds like a wonderful thing. Now he became aware. No, he became self-aware. He became egotistical. He became self-conscious, split, disconnected. That's what introduced evil and death and pain and suffering and all the negativity in life. It all comes from ego. If we had no egos, we'd all be angels. The world would be a Garden of Eden. Imagine families getting along, people getting along, <laughs> <laughs> friends getting along, partnerships getting partners getting along, countries getting along. This world would be a uh, paradise What the is? You wouldn't need any politicians. Everyone was truthful and honest and and faithful and so all human misery, 99 by percent of human misery, comes from ego, arrogance, self-centeredness, self-absorption. So that has to come to an end. If Adam is going to live forever, if man now is going to live forever, an eternal ego, a least thank God the ego comes to an end.
3: It's, it consists of, from all of the Tav, it's like good and evil in the weather itself. So by creating that as the very first thing, it's almost as if Hashem anticipated And kind of said, okay, let me set this up and don't take this wrong. But like, Adam wasn't the one who created the problem.
1: But there was a plan A and there was a plan B. Very good question. Unbelievable. Every one of the questions there is a home run. There's plan A and there's plan B. this is
3: what you created,
1: no? There's plan A and plan B. Okay. Plan A is, yes, there's good and evil. But just like King Solomon. King Solomon never left Israel. He never waged war. He sat in his palace in Jerusalem, and he was like a torch, a light that attracted Queen Sheba was attracted to him. All the kings of the world, he had a thousand wives, all the kings of the world, that was their way of sending their ambassador to him, making peace with him. They wanted to marry him, they wanted to connect with him, they came to learn wisdom. The Jewish people were like the full moon. He was the 15th generation from Abraham. They were at their peak, so this was a taste of, of Mashiach, a messianic taste. The temple was built. Hashem's greatest joy, God felt at home in this world. The Jewish people were on top of the world. It was anti-Semitism. The whole world made peace with King Solomon. It was Every Jew lived, was under his uh, fig tree, and, uh, his, under his vineyard and his fig tree, living comfortably and rich and affluent in peace, worshipping Hashem. I mean, this was not like an ideal. So, that's one option. That was plan A. Adam, by, by the, the force of his, of his soul, the energy would be so powerful that all the sparks would be elevated automatically. He wouldn't even have to engage in evil. All the sparks would be swooped up and connected and then the, the Mashiach would have come. Had he not eaten from the tree, had he waited till Friday night, According to one opinion, it was a, uh, it was a grape. And he waited three hours until Friday night. He would have made kiddush, and that was it. Then he went to plan B. <laughs> plan B, he did eat. His curiosity got the best of him. And it did affect him. And once he became affected and infected, the whole world became affected and degraded and downgraded. And now is plan B. Now it's a wrestling match. Now, the Jewish people are going to have to go all over the world, engage in the world, you're going to have to wrestle, you know, in a wrestling match. Sometimes you're on top, sometimes you're on bottom, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, sometimes you get punched out, sometimes you get knocked out, and sometimes you get stronger. We had generations of Jews that were on top, that were triumphant, that were great, righteous, yeah, generations that were pretty wicked and evil, and lost the battle, and the wind, its like a, a swing, a seesaw, back and forth. At the end of the day, inevitably, we're gonna win. Goodness is gonna win, and righteousness is gonna win. It's not even a question. But in the meanwhile, you gotta engage. And when you get it, when you're engaged, you know the broom that sweeps gets dirty. When you have to engage intimately, you have to wrestle with a person you're going to get uh, whacked around you're going to get beaten and hurt you know there's a price to pay so it's different now it's personal it's internal and that's very very difficult to clarify especially the last clarification which is our day and age because the evil is so buried inside it's so hidden it's so subtle you know it's duplicitous you know, it's very difficult to deal with duplicity. When evil is open, the Talmud asked, why is it that the Jewish people were in exile the first, the, first, between the first temple and the second temple? Seventy years! And then it was all over. Seventy years later, they're rebuilding a the temple. Why were we sitting in exile for close to 2,000 years? <laughs> because they were not duplicitous. They were evil. But they were open and honest about it. I'm evil. Now, no evil person announces I'm evil. No. Every evil person is the biggest saint. I'm a saint I love you I care about you democracy and meanwhile the emails are coming out every day you know I know why she lies <laughs> right <laughs> so it, it, it's like duplicity is very hard to deal with because you're not, stealing, you're not dealing with a straight deck guy. it's like a con artist could he deal with a con artist well watch your pockets, watch your fingers because everything is a lie, everything is a con, everything is a manipulation, everything is clever, sophisticated. You're not dealing with a straight deck yet. So that's why it's taking us nineteen hundred over nineteen hundred years, two thousand years, to clarify this evil. Now, thank God, everything is surfacing. There's no more no more everything is clarified.
3: So with the exception of Tsudeko Everyone else is constantly in this battle. Oh, absolutely. So therefore it seems to me
1: and the it's
3: virtually impossible to overcome Sitrakra. The Tzaddikim are also battle. The Tzadikim
1: are the generals in this battle. Yes. They are guiding the Jewish people. And there are forces of evil and forces of good on a cosmic level that the Tzadikim are battling. So the tzaddikim, Al Alter Rebbe says, the battles that he had to, Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, the battles that he had to fight on a cosmic level against the forces of evil That's right. and negativity and darkness and confusion. You know, it's it was a, a it is a Herculean effort. Look at the battles that the Rebbe had to had to fight with and is fighting with the the, the, neg- the lies and the negativity and the distortions and the. It's Herculean. So yes, it is a wrestling match. Till Mashiach comes, and obviously he hasn't come yet because we're still wrestling and struggling. Anyone who deludes himself that Mashiach has come already, uh, we're wrestling and uh, struggling. So obviously the redemption hasn't happened yet. So that means redemption for all, the, for all the Jewish people? When Mashiach comes, actually comes, fulfills his mission, and when redemption actually materializes, then the wrestling match is over. So we won.
3: possible?
1: We won. It's going to happen any moment. Because it's the accumulation of all the positive energy, all the good deeds of all 3,800 years. It all accumulates until you reach a critical mass. It's not just now. It's the accumulation of all the heroic sacrifice and tears and hope and faith and trust and righteousness and tzedakah and goodness and kindness and Torah and mitzvot and soul and faith, all of that combined because every bit of energy... That we, it's like a seed that we plant, that seed is here, and it germinates. And inevitably, this seed will yield and turn into this lush garden of Eden, this world will become a garden of Eden. This world is fertile, that's what we believe in. Unlike other religions that believe you're born in sin, quit while you're behind, uh, it's all about the other world, the next world, the whole world is maya. No, Jews say this world is the most fertile of all the worlds, this world is fertile. When you plant a seed, you do a mitzvah, you do Torah, you do a mitzvah, this world is so fertile. It's a Garden of Eden. It once was, inevitably will be again, potentially it is even now. And every time you're planting a seed, you're planting a seed and inevitably that seed will take root, is taking root, is growing deeper and deeper and then it will explode. That's Mashiach. It hasn't exploded yet because we're still in exile, we're still struggling, we're still wrestling. I can speak for myself, I can't speak for anyone else in the room, but it's a big struggle. <laughs> to do the right thing is a tremendous struggle, and we don't always win the struggle. You know, There's weaknesses and there's strengths. and Obviously we're still wrestling, Mashiach hasn't come yet. Bottom line is Mashiach hasn't come yet. The redemption hasn't come yet. And that's why we're still sitting on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Believe me, the moment the struggle ends, we're not going to be here on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. <laughs> we're going to be on the Upper East Side of Jerusalem, with 14 million Jews, with Mashiach, with the Temple, That hasn't happened yet. I don't know anyone who's delusional or thinks that it has. So it's a dark exile. It's a bitter, dark exile. We're wrestling and we're struggling and and we're fighting the fight. We're not throwing in the towel. On the contrary, we're at the end of the battle. We're the last yard, the last foot, the last moment, the last minute. So we have to strengthen and uh, be strong.
0: He's suggesting an all-cash position at this
1: point. <laughs> 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 well, it depends which side you're investing in.
3: If Bible. you're investing in the Torah and Yiddishkeit
1: and Chabad, go all in. This is it. Don't push for tomorrow. because then, then you won't be able to invest. It'll be too late. Now is the time. Now is the time to... to to invest then you 'll cash out, <laughs> but then once the it 's clear and the battle is over, penny a little t- uh, right, a little uh, too late until too, too little too late. so now is the time. Hashem gave us another day to invest to struggle to so this is the tree of knowledge and the tree so the tree of knowledge so the whole world when the world was in like a garden of Eden. Everything was clear. He looked at this world, it was transparent. He saw Hashem. But now the world is covered up. It's called the klipa, the shell. It's covered up. You don't see the divine energy. You see life and energy, but you don't connect it with divine energy. So the objects, the world that we're living in, the arena that we're living in, comes from the tree of knowledge. A mixture of good and evil that's what he says it's kosher or not kosher kosher all kosher means it has the potential to be elevated so it's from a tree of knowledge if something is not kosher then it's not even from the tree of knowledge it's not a mixture of good and evil it's absolutely evil you can't touch it hands off but when when the Torah says the tree of knowledge it's a mixture means it has the potential to be elevated and that's what we're dealing with that's what the Torah deals with to tell us what's kosher and to take things that are kosher, and turn it into objects of so a mitzvah, do a mitzvah with it, turn it into a, a holy object, or take things that are kosher and use it for the sake of heaven. So the 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 things that we're dealing with is from the tree of knowledge. Not that the Torah itself is a tree of knowledge. God forbid, Torah is Eitz Chayim. Torah is Torah is a tree of life. Every word, every letter of the Torah the revealed part of the Torah the Talmud the code of Jewish law it's divine don't think for a moment uh, otherwise it's, it contains the infinite it
0: contains Hashem's Hashem's infinite wisdom this in fact is the root of Asr meaning forbidden literally bound the klipa hovers over the forbidden thing so that it cannot rise aloft to holiness like that which is mutar, meaning permitted, literally
1: unbound. Bound because everything has a godly spark. In order for anything to exist, essentially, it has to have a divine energy, but it's completely covered up, klepa. It's bound. It's tied up. It's uh, it's covered up, and it cannot be uh, released. It can't be accessed. It's not accessible. While well, mutar, continue. Well mutar means that a permitted
0: object is not tied and bound asr, to the klipa that would anchor it, and is therefore able to ascend by means of the person eating it with his mind on Hashem, e.g. in order
1: to have the strength to serve Him. Our intent, we have the ability through our intent to change, to change, to, to release this divine energy and to elevate it. That's the power that we have. Hashem empowered the Jew.
0: The same applies but there is no specific intent with any person who serves Hashem who studies Torah and prays to Hashem with the energy derived from this eating and so that the letters of Torah and of prayer which are sent to Hashem are formed out of the energy distilled from that food. In other words, the life force that derives from Klippa Nova is thereby elevated to Hashem. He's
1: so saying even if you had no intent, you're just eating, you're not thinking. You're eating automatically, mechanically. I'm not giving it any thought. I'm not... I'm not being gluttonous, and I'm not thinking about Hashem. But the fact is, the fact of the matter is that you took that energy. The food energized you. And with that strength, you went, and then you prayed, and you studied Torah. So you're elevating, the food is elevated, because it's the strength that you got from the food that enabled you to serve Hashem, to do a mitzvah. So, you, so automatically the food, the energy in that food, is elevated and redeemed and released.
2: Even without a bracha? Without a bracha or something else. Like, and yeah. noga, that means, like, mutual things. Like, like not, it's not a mitzvah, but it's not necessarily like a good... Correct. Correct. Sin, guess, Correct. Like Correct. And then what makes it appropriate or inappropriate, I guess, is the intention for it?
1: Correct. Okay. So everything in this world is divided into three categories. You have a holy object, a sacred object, something that's absolutely forbidden, off-limits... Then you have neutral. It's in between. Not just
2: objects, but its
1: activities too. Yeah, objects, activities. Then you have neutral. Kosher doesn't mean it's spiritual. It could be glot kosher and it could be a glutton. I mean, it doesn't make it, kosher doesn't make it godly. All kosher means, mutar. Mutar means it has the potential to be elevated. It all depends what you bring to the table. Because we, our mission is, our job is, to give. We, we bring something to the table. We're not just takers. We're not just using the food that we eat. We are actually here. Why are we eating? Not just because I need the food and I'm dependent on the food. If I need the animal, I'm dependent on the food and the food is superior to me and the animal is superior to me, who's on top and who's on the bottom. Then then, then, exactly, then you degrade it, that act becomes a degrading experience, but you are a giver, man, by definition, God chose us, we should be givers, we should bring something to the table. We are eating in order to elevate and release the energy, release the divine spark, release that divine energy. So if your attitude is, you have that refined attitude. You eat with a sense of purpose, with a sense of mission. Why am I eating? You're not just, I'm eating because I want to survive. Why? why? I'm, I exist because I have something that I have to accomplish. I have a divine mission to accomplish. I have to elevate all of the sparks around me. And eating, this is my way of elevating. So I'm bringing something to the table. I'm adding something to the table. I'm giving something. I'm not taking. I'm not a taker. If you're a taker, then you're under the influence of the animal. Then the animal superior to you. But I'm a giver. I'm giving something to the animal. I'm giving something to the animal the animal cannot do on its own. Because the divine energy in the animal is trapped. The animal doesn't have the ability to elevate this so energy. Yes. Sort you're of
2: elevating the animal because you're yes. using exactly. the food from the animal.
1: Exactly. 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 And when you money. take money and tzedakah, and you're using that to do a mitzvah, for example, give tzedakah, so you're, all your activities... Your career and everything, all the conferences that you went to and all the, everything that you did, all those interactions that you did in order to make that money is now is elevated. Because, I've, again, you're living and with a purpose.
2: Those neutral acts.
1: Into something godly, into something that's the purpose. You've transformed those acts, you've elevated the spark, you've shifted something, you've changed something, you've done something, you've accomplished something. We're here to accomplish something. We're here to bring something to the table, to, to do something, not just to receive and to take. If it's all about pleasure, it's all about my pleasure, then I'm just a, I'm just a taker. Then, the, then I'm lower than the animal. How could you bring tikkun olam if you are you are the animal? You're worse than the animal. So you can't, you can't bring any elevation, you can't bring any change or any shift if you're part of the problem. It's only because we're above the animal. We're here to give. We're here, we live with a sense of divine mission. Not only on Shabbat when I'm studying Torah, when I'm eating. I'm here on a divine mission. My table, as the, rabbis, the Talmud says, is my altar. The act of eating is a sacrifice, an offering to Hashem. I'm, here, I'm serving Hashem. I'm bringing something to the table. I'm shifting, I'm changing, I'm elevating, I'm moving, I'm doing something, I'm accomplishing something. So if you live with that sense of purpose, sometimes a person will eat just in order to be able to make a blessing to Hashem. So the food is a means to an end. I'm in charge here. I'm in control. A person who just is a glutton, he's out of control. He's just an addict. He's just out of control. There's no no higher purpose. Even if you're eating to be healthy, and you're eating healthy, but there's no higher purpose. It's about surviving, continuing my existence. Just like the animal. What's an animal's life all about? Continuous existence. So I also want to continue my existence. I exercise, I eat healthy, but there really is no difference in me and the animal. But if you live with a divine purpose, I'm eating to elevate, I'm eating to accomplish something, to change. Something changes. Something changes. Now this is an offering. Because I, I made a blessing, and because I injected a divine intention. And I'm living with that divine consciousness. And divine connection. I'm bringing something to the table. I'm doing something. Now it's a different experience. I've changed this world. The Jew has the ability to change this world. God empowered us. Ordinarily we, no one has this ability. But we were given the ability to change this world. Take a physical experience. A physical object and to turn it into something divine and godly, release the sparks, reconnect it to its source, we were given that ability. My table is an altar. And I'm offering a sacrifice to Hashem. And it's a whole different experience. The eating is a whole different experience. All my material experiences, my career, my, my, it's not just surviving and paying my bills. It's part of my divine mission. As God's ambassador, I represent Hashem, and I'm bringing something to the table, and I'm changing this world. I'm actually changing everything that I interact with, everything I come in contact with, as a result of my divine intention. It's a different experience. It's an elevated experience. And God puts us in touch with a portion of this world that's connected to our soul, that's our destiny that we have to elevate. That's why Rebbe respected very wealthy people, because obviously, obviously they were given... A huge a larger portion of this world than the average person that means they are very powerful souls and they have the potential to elevate huge portions of this world you have thousands of people working for them or whatever they own that means that they have a lot of sparks that they have the ability to elevate and to reconnect to the source so he respected that potentially respected that hashem respected them hashem entrusted them and gave them a mission. They, they are ambassadors. You have ambassadors to Micronesia. <laughs> you have ambassadors to France or to Great Britain. This rich person is God's ambassador to Great Britain. God gave him a huge portion, a very important ambassadorship, a huge portion. Obviously, he has the ability to elevate these sparks. That's why you have to respect them, not because I respect money. I think People define themselves by money. We have no respect for but it, it's, you respect the fact that God respects, that God empowered his soul and gave him the ability to elevate such a huge portion. Or a person of influence. God, a person has a lot of influence and reaches a lot of people. That means that he has the ability to elevate many, many sparks. Is that
2: to say any person of influence has the ability to elevate even yes. if they're not
1: Jewish? Well, the... The idea of elevating sparks—a very good question. Idea of elevating sparks. This is a uniquely Jewish concept. This God empowered the Jewish people to take a physical experience and to change it, to make it into something divine. To take something physical to turn it into divine, into something godly. That's uniquely to the Jewish people. It's like taking a Torah scroll, taking leather hide of an animal, and turning it into a sacred object. This is unique to the Jewish Mm -hmm. people. This is unique to the Jewish people post-Mount Sinai. Even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't have that power. Angels don't have that power. As spiritual as angels are, they don't have the power to take the physical and turn it into something godly and holy. Only the Jew, only the Jew post-Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai empowered us and gave us the ability to change this world, to take the physical and our physical experiences day-to-day, daily lives, Mundane interactions. And with the proper intention, we have the ability to connect and to elevate and to redeem the sparks. This is our mission as Jews. That's our unique mission. We are chosen for this mission. This is our mission. We are God's ambassadors. And that's what our mission is. And it's, it's an astonishing type of thing. Angels can do. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob couldn't do. But God empowered us. This is the miracle of the Revelation, of Mount Sinai. This is the astonishing thing that happened at Revelation, at Mount at Torah. Torah empowers us to change the world in our daily interactions, our daily lives. This is the power of the Torah, this is the power of the Jew, to change the world, the physical world, that it becomes a holy experience, a godly experience.
3: This is so during the week. In order for the food eaten on the weekday to be elevated, it must be utilized for Torah or prayer. But on the Sabbath, the Khalifa Nogar itself is elevated together with the external aspect of all the worlds. And the Shabbos is characterized by the elevation of the world. It is therefore a mitzvah to eat all kinds of pleasurable things on the Sabbath for the sake of the unique Shabbat, enjoying the Sabbath, irrespective of the fact that it gives one the strength to serve God and to partake of more meat and wine than usual, even though on a weekday one would be called a glutton. Of
1: a if we ate during the week, like we ate on Shabbat, you'd be a glutton. All of a sudden on Shabbat it becomes a mitzvah. You must eat, and you must eat pleasurable foods, and you have to have pleasure and you have to have a full dinner and a full course all week a person you know eat what you need eat the beer minimum you know but here on Shabbat you have to eat meat and fish and wine and delicious challah it has to be a full meal full you know, it's so a be grand That's has be grand like super, a yeah, super this year we're going for super grand this week uh, oh, this week another one another super grand this Shabbos
3: this Saturday? Really?
1: <laughs> okay,
2: I'll do that. So does that also include with food, but with other things, like, let's say, like reading a secular book on Shabbat? Does that also...
1: Well, things, okay. things that give you pleasure, but that's the, the discussed halachically what the certain things, like business, you shouldn't be reading on Shabbat. Yeah, not business, but like... Right, say, a, like pleasure- a ancient, pleasurable book. book. But
2: not a religious book. Yeah,
1: it, listen, things that give you pleasure, taking a walk... Shabbat Friday night is when husband and wife should be intimate with each other. It's a, it's a day of pleasure. But Take, when it says
2: it, that the Karifah Nova, is listed, is that included on other well, things? Well,
1: no, so, because it's a mitzvah. No. You're doing it because it's a mitzvah. <laughs> because Shabbat, it's a mitzvah. So he says that on Shabbat, something actually happens on Shabbat. The world changes on Shabbat. hmm You can sense it. If you were able to see it, you would see it. But something happens on Friday night. It's not something that a scientist could detect in a laboratory. But the divine energy withdraws and reconnects back to its source. It's like when a person rests, your energy withdraws, rejuvenates, reconnects. So the divine energy, God so to speak, extends himself. The godly creative energy extends itself six days a week, and the seventh day, God rests. What happened the first time happens each and every week. Every, 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 week. Week. every week, it's not, it's not a, we're not just a commemorating something that happened five thousand seven hundred and seventy-seven years ago. It happens every week. The divine energy withdraws and goes inward, and that's why it's a day of pleasure. You're going back to yourself. You're reconnecting. You're rejuvenating. You're replenishing, and that gives you the energy to go back for the next six days. So, because the energy is reconnecting to its source, and that's why everything is elevated. You can't tell a difference between the of kugel Friday afternoon, Friday night, but there is a difference between the of kugel Friday <laughs> afternoon <laughs> or Friday night. <laughs> you know, you check in the laboratories, right. but the, there's a huge difference because Friday afternoon. The kugel is the Noga. It's covered up. It's concealed. The divine energy is concealed. But magically, when the stars come out, when it turns Friday night, the divine energy just withdraws back to its source. Everything is elevated. The world is in elevation. That's why the world is at rest. The world is at rest. Not only the Jews at rest. The whole world is at rest. All the physical objects, the divine energy that's creating the whole world is at rest, is withdrawing, is returning back to its source to be replenished, to be re- reconnected, so reconnecting to its source. So everything is transformed. The piece of kugel, the physical objects are changed, are in an elevated state. That's why he says you can eat, everything you do on Shabbat becomes a mitzvah becomes you have to eat and you have to eat well and you have to have pleasure and you have to so because the physical object is in an elevated state. That's why in Shabbat you're not allowed to clarify, you're not allowed to separate. Six days a week we're busy clarifying. Separating the good from the evil. We have to elevate the food because the food is covered up, so we have to separate the good from the evil to release the spark. But on Shabbat, the food is elevated. You don't have to separate it. And therefore, you're not allowed to separate it because you're not, you're not accomplishing anything. It's done already. Hashem did it. Hashem elevated the sparks. There's no commingling on Shabbos. Everything is elevated. So therefore, the act of eating on Shabbos, it becomes now. Nevertheless, don't be a fool. The Baal Shem Tov once showed his students. When he wanted to show them things, they would all sit around the table. He would tell them to put their hands on each other's shoulders. So they created a circle. They sang a few songs, told them to close their eyes, and he put his hands, he closed the circle. He put his hands in his two closest students, and all of a sudden, they saw an axe, a huge fat axe in a shtraymo, in a big Hasidic hat, dressing cholent, eating cholent. <laughs> it was Shabbat, and he was eating Shem you know, Shabbat, every bit he said, the 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 honor of Shabbat. But he ate it with such relish that he was in the pot. <laughs> because wherever a person's desire is, that's where he is. So a person could be dressed up in the finest garb, Hasidic garb, and he deludes himself that he's eating le'kobet Shabbos koitosh, but he's eating with such relish that he is the ox, he is the troll. He is, because wherever a person's desire is, that's where he is. So, but a person who studies Hasidus and realizes that Shabbat, the whole world is elevated, we're elevated, the whole world is elevated, the Talmud says a person, even a Hammaritz, even an earthy person, doesn't lie on Shabbat. If he says that something is tithed on Shabbat, the whole week you don't believe him, but on Shabbat he's believed. Saturday night you don't believe him, and Friday afternoon you don't believe him. But whatever, that same person, whatever he says on Shabbat, I believe him because Shabbat, we are elevated. It elevates us, the whole world is elevated. So therefore, if you realize what's going on, the inside story, what's happening on Shabbat, then you realize the godly, the godliness of Shabbat. So I'm eating, yes, and I'm enjoying the food, and I have to enjoy the food. That's the mitzvah. You have to, it has to be pleasurable food, and you have to feel the pleasure and taste it. But it's not about indulgence not about fressing and eating like a pig. It's not about that's not Shabbat. That's coarse and crass. Shabbat is a holy day. We are holy. It's a, it's a, it's a, we're a different person on Shabbat. It's a godly thing. This is how I'm expressing my godliness by eating this, uh, this feast on Shabbat and doing all these pleasurable things. It's a way of expressing this godly experience. That we're experiencing on in the inside. So these, it's a very deep and subtle reality. It's not uh, not to be taken on face value that I mean, Shabbat suddenly became a mitzvah to be a glutton. Six days a week is forbidden, and we have one day pass Shabbat. Anything goes, <laughs> fresh eat. That's not Shabbat. That's not the spirit of Shabbat. Shabbat is a godly day. It's an elevation. If a whole week we're not coarse and crass, suddenly on Shabbat we become coarse and crass. That's that's foolish. That's, Shabbat is we're an elevated state. Everything is godly, but even the physical is godly. That's the point. That even the physical is also godly. So on Shabbat it's more like the Etachayam. It's more like the we get a taste of the future. The whole world will be elevated. When the physical world and even the physical beings, everything will be elevated. This is a taste of Mashiach. A little taste.
2: It is otherwise with a forbidden thing. It cannot extend to holiness, neither on the Sabbath nor on a weekday, even if one were to pray and study with that energy, i.e., with that energy derived from
1: eating it. So even on the holiest day, even on Shabbat, with all the elevation of Shabbat, it, it doesn't work. And even if you went ahead and with this energy, you were faint, you had no strength. you ate a juicy piece of ham and with this energy now you come to shul and you're praying and you're swaying and you're davening and you're learning it's the not health you can't kosher chaza you can't kosher uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in a much? circumstance where like, like in the
2: camps if you were going to die next, read. read,
1: next paragraph okay. you anticipated the question
2: Unless one ate in order to save an endangered life, which is permitted by our sages of blessed memory, so that the food becomes entirely permissible.
1: Exactly. When the Torah says that life takes precedence over everything, and then you have to eat. So then, what does means the Torah is telling us that we have the ability then. then when you eat, you do have the ability to release that spark because I'm doing I'm doing the right thing.
0: You're
1: saving us. I'm saving a life, and that takes precedence. Now,
0: it's not from the food
1: right but he, and that's why it's in parentheses when he says becomes entirely permissible that's not simple entirely is not exactly simple it's only the torah doesn't it doesn't become kosher but the torah says that it overrides and therefore you could only do what's necessary but the negative effects uh, there's actually a very interesting addendum in the back which i think is worthwhile to read page 160
2: in the middle of the above epistle, the Alter Rebbe stated that if one ate forbidden food in order to save an endangered life, the food becomes entirely permissible. The Rebbe Shlita notes that this concept is problematic. Indeed, many indigents of the Tanya omit the word entirely, which is inevitably why it found its way into current editions as a rapid text. The Rebbe goes on to distinguish between, pro- between prohibition, iser and impurity, tuma. Which something is when something is prohibited, one can sense its inherent evil. For example, forbidden foods clog the mind and heart with spiritual congestion. Thus, even a pregnant woman scented forbidden food on Yom Kippur, and the Torah permitted her to eat it. If her life would otherwise be in danger, eating the food would still be her soul. Moreover, even when the prohibition was not intrinsic to the food, but a thought or a statement invalidated, as, for example, when an animal was slaughtered with idolatrous intent, eating this food leaves its imprint. Thus, for example, the Midrash traces the whereward path of Elisha Ben, uh, known as Asher, to very early beginnings before his birth. His mother had tasted food that was prepared for idolatrous worship.
1: Well, Elisha bin Avuyah is one of the greatest rabbis and was quoted in the Ethics of Our Fathers and many other places, and he was the teacher of Rabbi Meir. He was one of the four who entered the Pardis, and he became a heretic. How did this happen? Because when his mother was carrying, was pregnant with him, when Yom Kippur, she felt very faint and she had to be given food, and she insisted on eating, and they gave her to eat food that was prepared Kosher food, The it was prepared for, for, for an idol. So even though the food was essentially kosher, but once it was prepared for an idol, it becomes forbidden. Even though they were allowed to give her this food because her life was in danger, but nevertheless, the negative effect, it still has a negative effect. It's like you're, It's like you're eating poison. You have no choice what you're giving, but the poison will still harm you. It's not like it suddenly becomes kosher and now it becomes like... A, no, you're eating garbage. Like the spiritual kosher. level of the
2: food was affected.
1: Yes, this the. It's coo-
2: similar to like if you cook food in uh, something that hasn't been told, world, then it like it's still cook, like kosher technically, but it's like the spiritual. Right,
1: right. Of the food is affected. Yeah, absolutely. So so even though you could elevate the spark in this case, you are elevating the spark, but nevertheless, you can't say it's the same thing like eating kosher food. It's not the same. It does have a negative effect. And that and to prove the point even more in the light of the above. How can kosher
3: food be prepared for an idol? That would negate its kosher, right? No,
1: it's it's the it's the idol preparing for the idol that makes it non kosher. I'm not talking about pig. Ham. We're talking about glot kosher food. Glot kosher. But right? if you use it for an idol it becomes prohibited, right? What like a it becomes prohibited. Okay. But but because her life was in danger, so they gave her that food. Cause she, she was going to die. Right. It was on Yom Kippur, so they gave her that food. But it had a negative effect on her son and her child because she ate it while she was pregnant with him and eventually turned into a heretic. They, the rabbis trace it to that incident because she imbibed, she ate this food. It had a negative effect on her and on her child and eventually... It planted a seed and eventually it, it, he turned into a heretic because of that incident. So you see that even though she was allowed to eat... Do
2: you think it was because she didn't
1: really need it? Whatever it is, you have to be very careful. You have to realize, you know, it, it was a, you had to eat poison. You were in danger, but you have to realize you have to do something to counter that. You have it inside of you. Eating... I, you internalize it. Whatever you eat, you internalize. You are what you eat. See, you can't pretend you didn't. You ate junk food, it's going to affect you. You can't pretend that you didn't eat it. You ate it. And, and it stays with you. So it, it does affect you. So you have to do th- countermeasures. You have to go out of your way extraordinary countermeasures to counter that negativity. I'll read the next paragraph, In Light of the Above.
2: In Light of the Above, the Rebbe Shrita goes on to know we can understand why a nursing mother who has eaten forbidden food, even when permitted to do so because her life was in danger, should refrain from nursing her child. For although eating this food was in fact collectively permitted, the nature of the food and the spiritual blemish which it imparts to her infant remain unchanged.
1: It's even though she was allowed to eat it. She didn't do anything wrong. She didn't do anything wrong. But, but the effect on the child will still be a very negative effect. That's why people make a big mistake. They think children are not obligated to mitzvah, mitzvot. So what do I care if they eat kosher? They don't eat kosher. Chol of Yisrael. Don't be so strict. They're only kids. Terrible, terrible mistake. Because they're so vulnerable. And they're so impressionable. Look, here we're discussing Elisha ben Avuya while he was in his mother's womb. She was pregnant with him. He wasn't even born yet. And look at the effect that this... This food had on them this negative effect. We're talking about nursing infants; they're babies. And look at the halacha says she should not nurse. Get a woman, a Jewish woman who is eating kosher to nurse her. So you have to be so careful, especially with children. The younger they are, the more impressionable. The slightest thing could have a negative effect, like it's little seeds. You have to be so careful.
2: This is especially so according to the halakhic determination with regard to one who is ill as well. That a life-threatening situation merely sets aside a prohibition. It does not make the prohibition object permissible. As the Rebbe Shlita concludes, the above considerations inevitably explain why, in current editions of Igeret HaKodesh, regarding the food eaten in a life-threatening situation that becomes entirely permissible. The word entirely is bracketed and in many editions never appears.
1: If it's a life-threatening situation, it only sets aside a prohibition. It's not that suddenly it becomes kosher. So you're only allowed to do exactly what you need, not more.
2: It's just the other mitzvah is greater than...
1: Exactly. Overrides. It overrides. It's, it's overrides. Life overrides. Preserve, preservation of life overrides any prohibition. So eat the poison. It's poison. And you're eating it. And it's becoming part of you.
2: Does intention have anything to do with it? Like, did Alicia's
1: mother know that that was... It, can't, it won't, doesn't make any difference. It's an objective reality. Just like he said, when something is prohibited, it doesn't matter what your intentions are. You can have the noblest intentions. But I'm eating because I want to be strong. I want to learn Torah. It doesn't change but the what fact.
2: What you don't know
1: it's not kosher? It doesn't change the fact. Exactly. Exactly. It just proves the point. If I eat poison, but I didn't know it was poison, I mean well. It doesn't change the reality. It's an objective fact. But then how would she know not to know? No, no. We're talking about a case where she doesn't know, where she was allowed to eat it because her life was in danger. But But the fact is, it's an objective reality. You ate something not kosher. You were allowed to. You were obligated to eat it. Not only were you allowed to. You had to eat it. But the bottom line is, you internalized and you ate. And now part of your system, you ate something that's not kosher. And that's going to have a very negative effect on you. There's no going around that. That's the point that he's trying to make. So you can't say it's totally permitted as if, as if it's nothing. No. It, it overrides. So You have no choice. But you have to remember that you're eating poison. It says that Hashem does not allow... It's tzaddik, to sin unintentionally. Hashem will protect the righteous person, that he won't... So Taisav says this is only true regarding the sins of eating, that Hashem will protect the righteous mm-hmm. person, that he won't, by mistake, eat something that's not kosher. I think it was a cruise of rabbis, uh, Orthodox rabbis, Many rabbis, and uh, they were commenting, you know, the food tastes delicious. We never had such delicious food. It's extraordinary. What's going on? <laughs>
3: <Good> stuff, <true. laughs> uh, it was happening. Really?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, true story, unfortunately. So, but it says a real righteous person, a true righteous person, Hashem will protect them. He won't allow that to happen. Because we're human, you know, we're fallible. Hashem will just orchestrate, make sure that it won't happen. Why? Other sins could happen. Tesis says, other sins, even the greatest tzaddik, we're human, we're fallible, you can make a mistake. God doesn't have to protect you, he doesn't have to make a miracle for you. Why does God, Hashem go out of his way to perform a miracle to make sure that God forbid the righteous person shouldn't eat something that he's not allowed to eat? Because the problem with eating is, once you've eaten it, it becomes part of you. So the poison, it poisons you. So, you. so Hashem has to protect you. It, but it was unintentional. I meant well. I had no idea. It's very nice. We're not going to punish you. That's not the point. It's not about punishment. Not punishment. It's not about the merits or not merits. It's not about the guy you're getting a garden of Eden. You're not getting a portion of the world to come. We're talking about it poisons you. Hashem cannot allow. You're so pure. You're so holy. You're so wholesome and righteous. And you're doing your best. It's humanly possible. Hashem will... Protect you and shield you, God forbid. He doesn't have to protect you from sinning, you know, by, by mistake. But he has to protect you from eating something non-kosher by mistake. Because even though you're not going to get punished for doing that, but it's going to affect you negatively. So there's something about eating that's so powerful. You are what you eat. You have to be very careful. It hasn't on you. That's why the Torah says also, you eat the predatory animals, it will affect you. You will, you will become like an animal. There, those cultures who drank blood, they wanted to, to get the blood, the spirit of the animal. They wanted to imbibe the spirit, to drink the blood, to go, go right down into their system. Yes, you are what you eat. That's the power of eating, power of keeping kosher. Not because uh, they didn't have the uh, the department of uh, the FDA, whatever. Uh, Right. It's not because they didn't have the FDA and trichinosis. It's, it's spiritual. You are what you eat. And we need super, super unleaded gas or something very, very fine engine. We need something very super, right? A jet fuel, because otherwise it can clog our systems. If you eat non-kosher, if you eat cholavakim, it just clogs your system. And when you're super, super sensitive, when you have an eshrama, a Jewish soul, a divine, godly piece of the divine essence, anything on kosher clogs up our system and interferes with our deepest sensitivities and it just creates a blockage. And even if you had no choice, and even if you, you were allowed to eat and you had to eat it, but the system is clogged, you ate that poison not your fault, it is your fault, you did know, you didn't know, you had to, emergency. The bottom line is, it was an overriding consideration, but you still did something that's going to affect you. There's no running away from that effect.
3: You have to correct.
1: Yeah, I I guess you have to do something intense to, to override that. Okay, to be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project.
0: More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.